Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Good morning, everyone. My name is Russell, and I'm the pastor here. Um, and happy Advent. Um, Advent, if you didn't grow up in like a liturgical setting, is a time of posturing. We posture ourselves um, to wait and to anticipate and to uh, slow down. So we almost get to act like kids again, waiting for Christmas Day um, to come. And um, it, which, what's cool about Advent actually is that the liturgical calendar actually begins um, today. So it's like the Christian uh, New Year today. And that's what I want to talk about today is how to wait but with hope. How do we wait with hope? So let's uh, read our main scripture today, um, and then uh, it's actually two. It's John and then Romans chapter 8. So John 1, 14. The Word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we begin. And so, Father, we love you, and um, my prayer is that you might meet us here today, um, and our pace and our anxiety would be be met by your peace. If we hold fear, I pray that we would be met by your presence and your wisdom. If the pace of our life feels frantic and speed is the word you use to describe us, would you teach us to slow down? In our consumerism, would you teach us a rich generosity? We want to find the hope that we're hearing about in this passage. We know you are good. We know you are not an anxious God. And so meet us here now by your grace. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I want to begin with that image um, on your handout, if you want to grab it. There's one on the screen here as well. Um, This is actually a painting. Um, It's called The Census at Bethlehem. It's a 16th century um, Renaissance painter by the name of Peter Bruegel. Um, It was painted in 1566. This um, rendition and the one on your handout is actually done by his son, um, Peter Bruegel the Younger. Um, It's just a little bit brighter. It's very practical. Um, But um, the first thing I thought of when I saw it was, uh, where's Waldo, right? That's kind of what I was getting. Um, But if you look at it, um, let's just shout out a few things. What do you notice about it? We can be art critics this morning. Say it again. It's what? It's, it's cold, snowing, good. What else? 
Please, not everyone at once, okay? It's busy, good. What else? There are a lot of dogs. I love that. There's a guy peeking out the window, good. You would notice that. (laughs) What else? Very colonial, all right. Right, remember the, the title of it was The Census at Bethlehem. I don't think it snows very often in the West Bank, so uh, I don't know what's actually happening here. Um, all right, so you'll notice a lot of movement in the picture, right? It's very busy, a lot of figures and people. And you may not notice it, but in the, uh, right at the bottom, off-center to the right, um, if you zoom in, what you actually see there is Mary and Joseph. Um, and it comes from that Luke chapter 2 passage where it says, In those days... Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And so what the, what the painting actually is, is the Christmas story, right? It, Jesus is then born, but the problem is we're not in Bethlehem here, right? It's, it's a bit too modern. Uh, you know, I, it really, I, the snow is, is quite fascinating thinking about Joseph and Mary. Um, but what the painter actually decided to do here is to set the scene of Joseph and Mary into his own native 16th century rural Dutch town. And I did a little uh, studying on this. Um, in the 16th century, the predominant religious artwork was iconography. And so this was a breakaway from the type of art of the time. And it was the artist's way of depicting a biblical scene in simple daily life as a way of saying, Christ can appear in your midst, right? It's his way of saying, this is relatable to you. What else do you see here? You see overlapping scenes. Um, I've looked at this a ton. So you see people in the bottom left um, huddling up to be registered. If you, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a larger work, so you can actually zoom in. You see the exchange of money. Um, in the bottom left, there's an animal being cut open. So there's like um, food to be eaten. Um, in the upper left, there are people coming across the, uh, the ice. They're working and trying to, um, you know, prepare for winter. There's carts being unloaded with sacks of grains and people huddled up around the fire. On the, on the bottom right, if you zoom in enough, there's actually a kid spinning a top um, and playing on top of the ice. Um, there's a, a kid throwing snowballs. Um, the work is marked by movement. When I was looking at it this week, right in sort of the center of the picture to the right, um, if you notice, each of the figures is sort of at an angle right? Um, the, the artist has the movement sort of built into it. And then um, right on the left, right on the edge of the water there, there's one man, and it seems to be that he's just standing and observing and taking in the scene, but he seems to be the only one that's not moving. And so what's happening? Everyone is on the go. Mary and Joseph enter with Jesus, and it's all the seasonal tasks, the harvesting and the pruning and the taking in the cattle for winter, everyone is driven in this photo by the day-to-day minutiae when a miracle is being played out before them and no one stops to notice. And here you and I are, the beginning of December, days are growing shorter, darkness meets us earlier, 2023 is escaping us, and it seems as though time is speeding up towards the end of the year And one of the things I increasingly feel in my own life is um, what I would call a scarcity of time. It never seems that there's enough time, right? You're closing in on the deadlines for the end of the year. We're cramming for finals. We're visiting family. We're getting a last-minute drink in with friends. We're shopping. We're decorating. And it's that rush to get to Christmas. 
And yet, in our rush to celebrate, the church has actually used this season historically not to speed up towards the end of the year, but to actually slow time down towards the end of the year. It's why it's called Advent. It comes from the word Adventus. It means a coming or an arrival. And so the work actually at Advent for us is to prepare for that. It's to cultivate a heart of longing so that we can, like um, mirroring ourselves in the posture of ancient Israel, say, I want to anticipate something again. I, I know that something is ahead. And so what that means for us as a people is how is it that we do the longing part? How is it that we learn to wait and rest and slow down? Even in the midst, I know the calendar is full, but how do we even do it in the midst of that? And we've sort of taglined this, uh, this advent here, let us find our rest in thee. Because we collectively want to tune in with our bodies to slow down. We want to actually become in touch with our very souls so that we can slow down. So let me, I want to, here's what I want to do today is I want to, I want to give you the reason Advent exists. Like it's not going to, you're not going to find the word Advent in Scripture, but I want to, I want to show you why it uh, could be a helpful thing for you this season in particular. And then I want to talk about how, um, how we hope and suffer simultaneously, and then I want to talk about becoming patient and eager at the same time, and we'll probably talk about Zootopia as well because this is the best kids movie. So, all right? All right, Advent. Let's begin here. A threefold waiting. This is what we're doing at Advent. So we believe as followers of Jesus that Christ has come in time and space in human history, incarnation. Um, our, our word for incarnation, uh, we get it from the Latin right in the center of it. You may notice carne, meat, right? This is what it means, um, the word incarnation. It means um, Jesus, God, God put on flesh, um, the word carne there. And that's what John 1 is actually describing. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And so at Advent, what we're doing is we're saying, um, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people are a longing people. They're saying, we're longing and waiting for the one that's going to come and make all things right, or the word for it is Messiah. And so what we actually do at Advent is we say, I want to mirror that same posture. I actually, want, I actually believe that Christ came in time in history, um, which is the typical sort of way to celebrate Christmas, right? Jesus has come. It's his birthday. Let's celebrate. Let's exchange gifts, right? That's why reading scripture is actually really important. What we're doing in the Old Testament when we're reading it is we're actually tapping into the ways that people were longing for and responding to um, the coming Messiah, the coming king, the one that was going to make things right. And what you read in there is actually really helpful because you see confusion and longing and frustrations as they uh, wait, right? Waiting is, not, is no easy task. And so Christ has come, but the promise also is, and we've spent so much time talking about this this fall, is that Christ is coming again. This is the, the, the sort of beginning and end of the Bible is that the, the promises of revelation is that someone to come and to make all things right, right? There's a sort of dissonance between the world that we live in and the God we believe in um, that we call good, right? It's, it seems like, okay, you know, Russell, you, you, you talk about God as good and, and kind, and yet we seem to live in a world of war and frustration and suffering, and there seems to be a dissonance between those two things. And this is exactly why, is because we live in a fallen, broken, sinful world, but we're waiting for Christ to come back and to redeem all things. And in his final return, it will be the end of war, the end of cancer, justice for the victimized, the dismantling of white supremacy and racism, the end of climate change and pandemics, because 
What we're actually hoping for is, um, and, and the promise is, is uh, the death of death is, is maybe the easiest way to say it. And the church, our, our posture in that is, um, I, I mean, I guess the best way to say it is that we have a sort of perpetual advent, right? So we're practicing advent in this season for the next um, three, four weeks, but actually we live in a perpetual longing waiting for Christ and his return. But let me give you a little bit of hope here. Christ comes in our present moment. And, and I've been praying this week that this is actually what we would experience at Advent um, this, this season. Christ can meet us in the present moment. In John chapter 14, um, Jesus is, it's closer to the end of John's gospel, and he's saying, um, it's good that I go away. It's good that I go away because I'm actually going to leave an advocate or a helper, right? And I'm not going to, I think the, the phrase he uses is, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And then it says this in John chapter 14, but the advocate the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, will remind you of everything I've said. Peace I leave with you, peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus is saying, I'm still going to be very much alive and present with you through the Holy Spirit. And, and, I, and I hope that maybe as I continue to talk today that that would actually be the thing that resonates with you, that, that actually in the thing that, and maybe in the discussion that you're sort of having with me um, in your head today, that like you, you could just ponder, like, could, could God by the Holy Spirit actually meet me in that, in that desire, in that longing, in that frustration, in, in, in the busyness? Because I'm, I'm going to tell you to, to wait today, and um, that could be very frustrating, right? That can be, um, uh, there, there can be a lot of um, frustration in that. But if we're really going to do that well, then we have to learn how to suffer, um, and we have to learn how to wait in that. And so that's what I want to spend the rest of our time um, trying to understand. And um, maybe one more caveat before we look at this passage is um, I'm, I'm one on 45 or something like that, but I, I'm not, I, I'm, I, don't want, um, I don't want to disregard the real and actual suffering that's, that's taking place in your life um, as I talk about this, right? I think when I read this, this, um, this passage in Romans 8, I'm like, Paul, but you don't actually know what people have experienced. So I want to I tread cautiously. And um, if you want to talk to me after about that, I would l- absolutely love to, to talk after. Maybe there's a way to, to think about how to um, um, really push into that with, with what we're going to talk about, which is hope. All right? So here's, here's what Paul says, waiting in hope, um, Romans chapter 8. He says, I consider our present sufferings. Notice present tense, right? He literally says the word present, right? I notice our present sufferings. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So Paul is saying there is actually a context in which your hope is birthed out of. He's saying you're presently suffering as a person, but I love that he sort of uh, zooms out in this cosmic sense, and he says, you know what, it's not only you that actually suffers, but the creation itself is subject to what he calls frustration. In the Greek, um, it's more like purposelessness or emptiness, and he says, the effects of sin have gone so far, it's not just in your own heart and your own mind and your own soul, but it's actually the whole creation. And, and when I read this this week, um, I don't know why I kept thinking about this. It seems at this time of year, I, I, and maybe you're like one of the ones that's having a great time, 
Um, but I always think about, um, like, everyone around me is having a great time, you know? And I'm actually, like, more mindful of, like, the horrors and tragedies of the world. Uh, yesterday, I was on 22nd Street. Um, I don't know if you guys know um, the German restaurant Rolf's. Um, the line is, like, down the street. Like, the ceiling is, like, pure Christmas. And I'm like, everyone is having such a great time. And I'm like, I'm kind of not, you know? And, like, can, can those things exist at this, the same time? And then, of course, you know, I'm like sad and reading this passage about um, how our um, very creation is subject to frustration. And if we were to go back, we won't spend the time to do it, but if we were to go back and, and, and look at Genesis chapter 3, you see those, um, what Genesis 3 ultimately brought is alienation from God, um, psychological pain, social and interpersonal conflict, natural disasters, disease, disease and death. By the way, I know this sounds sad, but this is actually the backdrop of Advent, Right? Um, at Christmas, what do we say? We say the light is going to come. Well, what does it come into? It comes into the darkness, right? So this is, this is our sort of context. And um, what Paul is attempting to say is, and I miss this the first couple times I read it, he's saying there's presently suffering. And he simultaneously says there's presently hope. And so look at, um, this is a different translation, the NLT. I, I thought this was just a better way of saying it. He says, for we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope. They're both present tense there, right? We long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering, meaning what? We're presently suffering. Right? There's like a, a presence of our, of our reality, of our life. And then look at the same verse. And we're eager for the day when God will give us our full rights as adoptive children. Meaning, we have hope. Paul's like, I know those sound mutually exclusive to you, but you can actually hold both things at the same time. You can be in the midst of great suffering and hold out a hope. He doesn't say... You have been suffering, but just hold on for a while because you're going to attain hope. And he also doesn't say, you have hope now, but, but wait a minute because you're going to find suffering. He's saying you can live in the hardship and suffering that the world brings to you, and you can hold on to an eager hope. And, and I th if, if that makes sense to you, it doesn't make sense to the world. It, it just, it doesn't make sense to the world. It, there's no category for that. You, you, you would say, well, you know what? The entire point of suffering is that you're in hardship and you can't see a way out, right? You either have joy or you either have sorrow. And so this is so unique. Suffering, like nothing else, actually what it does is it, it's like a magnifying glass into your very soul, into your very being. It's a way of saying, that's who you are at the core. And so when you think to yourself, well, you know, Russell, how can I have hope? I've, 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 I've lost my health. I've, I've lost a family member. I've lost um, money. I've lost professional um, achievement, right? What you're actually saying is that your hope is in a circumstance, and when that circumstance is taken from you, you lose hope. And categorically, this is what hope is for most people. Hope for most people is simply a circumstance. The problem with circumstances is that we lose them. They can be lost, and when we lose those things, we ultimately lose hope. Um, in seminary, I had to read um, Man's Search for Meaning by uh, Viktor Frankl. Anybody, anybody read it? A couple of you? Um, Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist um, who was forced into a concentration camp in, in World War II, and, 
and survived. And I don't know if any of you have ever been um, to any of these concentration camps, Birkenau, Auschwitz. I've personally been to Auschwitz. Um, it is, uh, it's a place of pure evil. Um, I, I went on a, a dreary day like today. Um, I think it was maybe like in the teens in terms of temperature. Um, and it, there, there's, there's no way to describe this place. It's utterly horrific. Um, loads and loads of people's luggage that they've kept and stored in a room when in the next door, you know, they're, they're housed with basically nothing. And um, Viktor Frankl, he, he was a psychiatrist in this time, and um, he never really stopped working as a doctor when he was in the concentration camp. Um, and instead, he, he was collecting stories, and he was talking to people, and he was making observations about how people went through this horrific suffering. And he noticed um, um, when they were faced with brutal conditions that they primarily reacted in one of four ways. And the first one is that he said some people just became cruel. Um, even though they were in the concentration camp, they, they, had, they had no hope. They just became cruel. And what they began to do was embody the treatment that they were receiving and giving that treatment to other people. Um, and he writes in his work, he says, the nicest people, even some of my friends, became cruel. Next, he said, um, he said some people just gave up. They, they just lost hope, and they said, this is the end for me. He said people would stop eating, and it was, it was very dramatic. And the story he tells um, about um, the loss of faith in the future, and actually he, he, he had sort of had a, a caution in his book about the dangers of forgiving up. He, he shares that in February of 1945, um, his block warden had a dream that at the end of March, March 30th, um, he, the war would be over. And so he was, uh, the block warden was sort of living into this dream, um, that the, the war would be over. Um, and so in early March, um, he came to Dr. Frankel and told him about his, his dream. And as the, the month gave way, um, it got closer and closer to the end of the month, um, it became clear the war was not going to end. They were not going to be freed. Um, and here's what he wrote in Man's Search for Meaning. Um, and F is the block warden. This is what Victor Frankel says. He says, on March 29, F suddenly became ill and ran a high temperature. On March 30th, the day his prophecy had told him that the war and suffering would be over for him, he became delirious and lost consciousness. On March 31st, he was dead. To all outward appearance, appearances, he had died of typhus. The ultimate cause of my friend's death was that the expected liberation did not come, and he was severely disappointed. This suddenly lowered his body's resistance against the latent typhus infection, his faith in the future and his will to live had become paralyzed, and his body fell victim to illness. And thus, the voice of his dream was right after all. The loss of hope for him meant death. He had nothing to look forward to and long for. Group thought, if I can just survive, I can get my hopes back. And so they basically said, um, my hope is in these things. It's very circumstantial in that way. They said, I... I'm longing for hope. I will get hope. It's in that sort of first category of like, you're presently suffering, but you're going to get hope. They're not existing at the same time. And so they said, if I can stay alive, my health, my family, my professional achievements, those things will all come back to me. And so they waited in that sort of longing. But then he said there was a fourth group that learned somehow to hope in the moment. And he, he, he shared with them that life never ceases to have meaning, even in the midst of suffering. This is what he said to them. You must not lose hope, but should keep your courage in the certainty that the hopelessness of our struggle did not detract from its dignity and its meaning. Like that there could actually be meaning in the midst of this. It's just crazy to think about. He said, I said that someone looks down on each of us in the difficult hours 
a friend, a wife, somebody alive or dead, or a God. And he would not expect us to disappointment. He would, he would hope to find us suffering proudly, not miserably in knowing how to die. He went on to say, life only has meaning if there is a hope and a meaning that suffering can't take from us. That they could both exist simultaneously where your hope is actually not in a circumstance, but your hope is actually placed firmly on a person. And I think most of us think that's true. We say, okay, you know what? I, I understand. Like, I'm, I, we're smart people, right? We say, I, I'm going to have suffering in my life. Like, I'm going to have um, circumstances and desires that aren't fulfilled exactly. But I'm going to be a hopeful person in that. But then the, the emotion of that hits us the real feelings and the intensity. And if I'm honest, when I was thinking about hope, I thought, if, I, if I'm honest, I don't, I don't do a lot of hope. I do a lot of positivity and I do a lot of planning, right? I'm like, I'll just be positive through it. Like hope is, hope is going to come my way eventually, right? I'll just, I'll just be positive until that moment. Or we do planning, right? We're like, I got a spreadsheet for everything. I got a plan. Nothing is going to come in my way. But we sort of buy into this, um, maybe what we might call like a fake optimism, when there's actually something tangible and real hope that we can have. And so what does Romans tell us about how to get that? How do, how do we get that? I'm going to say two things here. And the first one sounds like a cop-out, and that's fine. We'll, we'll get there. The first one is if we want to learn to wait, then we have to learn to be patient. We have to learn to be patient. Here's what Paul says. For in this hope, we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. When I was a kid, um, my parents lived like 25 miles apart from each other. They were divorced. Um, and so my sisters and I, we spent a lot of time in the car. Um, and um, when you're a kid, you, you know, the car is like, um, for us, we were like, don't get on the freeway. If you get on the freeway, you know you're going to be in the car a really long time. And what would our parents always tell us? Be patient. And so when, when we're told as kids all the time, I, I tell my kids this all the time, like, you need to be patient, be patient, be patient. What, what are we actually feeling on the other end of that? You, you sort of get a sense of powerlessness, right? Like, don't worry about what I'm doing. You just need to wait and see, right? And so on the other side of that, um, we, we sense that sort of um, cop-out almost. Um, oftentimes, uh, that's the way that I, I think about this. You know, when, when Paul says this, I, I sort of think, Oh, he, this is just a cop-out. Like, oh, God, God's, you know, God's going to come back and make all things right. You know, just wait patiently. Um, the image that came to mind, um, I think it's two slides over. It's uh, Zootopia. I don't know if you guys remember. Yes. All my illustrations for, like, the next couple years are going to be kids' movies, just so you know. So tune in. Um, we, we do family movie night at our house. One of my favorites is Zootopia. And I don't know if, you've, if you haven't seen this. This is the best scene. Um, the DMV is staffed by sloths, which is just like this perfect illustration. This is what it feels like when someone says, be patient. Like, I'm, 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 it's slow, it's boring, it's pointless. I watch this scene, and I'm like, come on, just like finish, because he's like drag stamping things. And he's like, waiting is not worth the trouble, right? What is it like, right? What if, what if I wait for something, but it never quite comes to me? What if... What if uh, all this is, is really nice and, and good, but what if waiting actually just leads to more waiting? Or what if waiting is a way of someone in authority taking advantage of us and our hope, right? 
Well, the, the first problem is, is that, and you, and you may hear that, right? If you're suffering, just wait patiently. It's in fact not what I'm saying today. What I'm actually saying is, is there's a very real hope that you can walk out of here with today. Like that, that's like on sale for you today and it's free. That, that's, that's not, I mean, there's no cop-outs here. We misunderstand what it means to be patient. Um, the word patience here actually translates um, as endurance or fortitude. It's that, and, and, and again, this is that moment where I say, like, I don't know what you've been through, but you know what suffering can actually do in your life? Suffering, pain, can actually build a, a, a real endurance in, you, in your heart and in your life. And, and I'm, that, that's like regardless of what you've been through, but like it really can. And, and, and patience is very difficult because it actually um, counteracts the impulse that's inside of us to fight or to flee. Right? It's, this is, I'm not talking about any sort of passivity. Patience is actually a thick and concrete action of a person who has hope. If you have hope, you, you will hold patience. But if you cannot be patient, then you can't have hope. But patience, patience is actually something very concrete. Right? I'm, presently, I'm presently suffering, but you know what? Actually, I can also simultaneously hold on to hope. But here's why. Patience on its own sounds like a cop-out. You have to join it with what, what, uh, what Paul also says here. He says, for the creation waits in what? Eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. And then in verse 23, he says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. And so, yes, we need to be patient. We need to, to hold fast in the midst of suffering, but simultaneously, we need to live in a sort of eager expectation, like a kid waiting for Christmas morning, like a, like a woman. I love that he uses that illustration, a woman waiting for a child to be, born, to be born, right? Like when a vacation is on the horizon and you're burning out, you know that feeling of sort of eagerness, like I need that to happen and I need that to be true. Um, the original uh, word um, for eager there is a, a person with their head held up high, right? I think that you can do both of those things while you wait. Here's where we'll end. Um, how, do we, how do we wait? Like, what, what does it mean? What's the sort of, like, application? What, what are we even supposed to do in that, right? Because those all sound like good ideas, but how do we do it? Um, Luke's gospel opens up with the birth of Jesus. But I love that Luke's gospel opens with people waiting for Jesus. Um, I don't know if you remember the story of Sim- Simeon. You should go read it. It's a little bit long um, so I don't want to do it here this morning. Please go read Luke chapter 2 and, and read the posturing. But I want to focus on Anna here for a second, the prophetess. It says this, There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then she was a widow until she was 84. I, that's very confusing, but basically it, it means that um, she was married and uh, maybe you know, 15, 16, very young. And then her husband died, and then she was a, a widow from then on. So she's a widow for, you know, 50, 60 years, something like that. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at the very moment she gave thanks to God. That's to Jesus. He was just born. And spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. This woman's waiting for Jesus. She's at the temple, worshipping night and day, fasting and praying, and by some miracle, I love this, she spoke about the child to all the people. And so let me just end with this image here. 
Um, this is Rembrandt. I, we started with art. I figured we'd end with art here. And I just really loved um, this posture of waiting. Um, this is the invitation to go read your Bible. Um, but I just thought, this is a person that the Scripture says is postured for Jesus. She's, she's postured, ready, anticipating for the arrival She's in the temple worshiping night and day, fasting and praying. And I'm just wondering, is this what you're thinking about coming into the end of the year? Um, Are you ready for the arrival, for for someone to come into your life, into the very present? She's giving thanks. She's speaking about the child. How will we wait and anticipate Jesus? And I'm just going to put a handful of things before you. Take it, leave it, write it down, don't. How will you slow down coming into the end of the year? I know for some of you, you're thinking, okay, you know what? I'm just going to rush until the 23rd, and then I'm going to be off for like nine days or something like that. Don't just do that. How are you going to prior to that slow down? Is it a Sabbath? Is it a, a bedtime routine that actually just needs, you just need to go to bed earlier so that you're more rested and more whole? Um, for me, I was thinking about how is it, like, like she says, I love that phrase, Night and day. Is there a way that I can give my, I don't even want to say this out loud in front of my wife, is there a way I can, can give my first five minutes and my last five minutes of the day to Jesus? Like to just become present and to slow down before I go to bed or right when I wake up and say, how is it that I wait for you? I don't exactly know what that looks like for each of us, but that we might actually be a people that are saying, you know what, I'm actually wanting to wait for you. I'm actually wanting to long for you. And so I'm going to posture myself there so that that's my heartbeat and that's my way so that then maybe you might meet me there. He will. He'll meet you there. You ask, he'll meet you there. I'm I'm so confident of that. How will we wait and anticipate the coming of Jesus? That's the Advent message, and I hope that you will do that this coming um, Advent. Let's pray.